0: On this edition of Commute, we are officially into March Madness mode. And while most of us fill out NCAA tournament brackets, very few of us correctly pick the upsets. So what happens when a David defeats a Goliath? Does the school actually get an enrollment boost from the exposure?
1: We've all been there. You encounter a problem, you make a call to fix said problem, only to be put on hold. The music comes through your phone and it's the lamest music you've ever heard in your life. Why does it have to be this way? We're talking the logic behind hold music.
0: Samoas, Thin Mints, Tagalongs, do dos We all have our favorite Girl Scout cookie, do we not? But how did this phenomenon start? And why do we love these cookies so much? All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, we are into the portion of the college basketball season known affectionately as March Madness. That cherished time each year where college basketball fans and non-fans alike enter their office bracket pool or they enter a bracket pool with their friends trying desperately to predict the unpredictable and guess the national college basketball champion. Jay, I have a bracket group that I put together every year. So update us, my friend. How is your bracket looking this year as far as we are uh, now coming to the end of March Madness?
1: Uh, it's not looking good um, towards the bottom <laughs> of any bracket pools that I participate in. Uh, I pretty much across the board chose Kentucky to make it to the championship Ooh. game. So that ended uh Early in the first week,
0: I watch probably more college basketball than about seventy five percent of the people in the bracket group, and I always come in the bottom the bottom third
1: Well, I did win that bracket pool one year, which i 'll never let you forget
0: i don 't think I ever paid you is that true i didn 't mean to if I paid you, it was by accident, yeah, you probably didn't you 're probably so <laughs> mad well, Jay, one reason that yours, mine, and most brackets get almost immediately ruined is the upset. Each season, without exception, a Cinderella team makes a run. A Cinderella team is defined as a team that was seeded pretty poorly with low expectations that upsets a higher-ranking team. Basically, an upset that would be nearly impossible to predict. This year, it was the St. Peter's Peacocks. The Peacocks' great mascot, by the way. A 15-seed upset basketball royalty, the team that Jay Sisson hitched his wagon to, the number two-seeded Kentucky Wildcats, on their way to a sweet 16 run. Jay, out of the millions and millions and millions of brackets, only 28,081 people correctly picked that upset, I would assume most of them St. Pete's uh, alums, And like I said, a few moments ago, this happens nearly every single year. Not always a 15 seed, like St. Peter's, but an underdog, a small school, a David, always beats a heavily favored Goliath. So Jay, knowing that, and with seasons and seasons of data to draw from, today we answer this question, so what? What happens, if anything, as a result of the run? Does the success of the winning Cinderella team drive enrollment up at its school? Well, my friend, believe it or not, there's actually a phrase associated with this question. The Flutie effect. Way back in 1984, Boston College quarterback Doug Flutie completed a Hail Mary pass to defeat the University of Miami. The miracle completion, often referred to as one of the greatest single plays in sports history, seemed to play a large role in an increase in applications at Boston College the following year. Applications at BC surged by 16% in 1984 following the Flutie Hail Mary Pass, and then again by 12% in 1985. But was the rise in school interest actually connected to the pass? Well, some say yes, but some say no. In fact, a report published in the 2003 edition of the Boston College Magazine looked at historic data that seems to say the past didn't matter all that much for enrollment. For example, in 1997, a year dominated by scandal in an NCAA investigation at Boston College shows that applications remained virtually unchanged from the previous year despite all the embarrassment on a national stage. And two years later, Jay, when applications at Boston College rose by a record 17%, the football team was horrible, finishing the year at four and seven. How about strictly speaking from an NCAA tournament point of view? the success is also somewhat difficult to gauge. A 2020 article from the Journal of Sports Economics did a deep dive on small schools and big schools that both made surprising NCAA tournament runs, and they found that especially for the smaller schools, a quick blip of success can actually be huge in applications, if only for a short amount of time the Butler Bulldogs, for example. A school in Indiana with about 4,000 undergrads, their run to the national championship game in back-to-back years, may I add, in both 2010 and 2011, resulted in an uptick of over 40% in applications the following year. The application success, though, was short-lived. The season after, Applications were back to normal with only a very modest 3% rise in apps from before the national championship runs. In 2013, two Cinderella teams made runs. Florida Gulf Coast, affectionately known as Dunk City U, and the Wichita State Shockers. Florida Gulf Coast saw a rise in applications by 36%. While Wichita State, get this, Jay, had an incredible, unprecedented rise in short-term interest—an increase of over eighty percent in submitted applications. <laughs> That's totally insane! Insane, shocking. May I add? Get it? The shockers. No, okay. okay, okay. So, we so, Jay, it. what can we actually take from all of this data? Is a Cinderella run good for enrollment or just applications? The answer actually is a resounding yes. Yes, a Cinderella run in the NCAA tournament is good for an institution, even if only for a short amount of time. Back to the findings from the Journal of Sports Economics. It says, and I quote, Making the NCAA's March Madness Basketball Tournament provides a national spotlight and advertising effect that is good for any school. We find that making a Cinderella run in the tournament provides promotional buzz that increases freshman enrollment by somewhere between 2 and 4.5% two years after the successful performance. You know, you talk about
1: short-term, you got to think long-term here, too. Like, a lot of these schools can kind of establish themselves as a basketball school. So you think about a place like Wichita State that you mentioned, like, they had that run but then they've kind of continued to build on that success ever since. So they use that in the recruiting of other basketball players across the country to come to their school. Shocking. Yeah. I mean, you did it once. I don't think you can quite do it again. (laughs) (laughs) So Dave, when was the last time that you can remember being on hold for a prolonged amount of time. So when we
0: say on hold, we mean like on the phone. That's a great question because it just happened recently. Um, You know, typically businesses, when you call and try to get a customer service representative, they'll put you on hold and there'll be like some elevator music, which I'm sure you're about to talk about. But I recently had an issue with my internet. And so I called my internet provider. They put me on hold and it wasn't elevator music. It was actually Nickelback. So it was uh listen this but it wasn't the full song. It was like maybe twenty seconds of it.
1: Well, you know we've all been there, right? You make a call, and it's typically a call that you didn't necessarily want to make. So you're placed on hold and you enter an audio purgatory of sorts, featuring hold music on a loop with reminders in between that your call is very important to us and that a representative will be with you shortly. Dave, hold music was actually first used in the 1960s, and it was actually discovered by accident by Alfred Levy, a factory owner who accidentally discovered hold music when an exposed wire in his telephone system picked up a radio broadcast next door and conceived The Idea... So when it comes to hold music, the context is important here, Dave. You typically make one of these calls because you have some sort of an issue, whether you need to report some sort of a problem or need to ask for help. The point being here, Dave, that when you make one of these calls, most of the time, you're already annoyed for some reason. Like you didn't plan in your day to make this call most of the time. So hold music then, doesn't it sort of seem like a wasted opportunity? I mean, Could the background music make you less likely to hang up or put you in a better mood to deal with a customer service representative on the other end? And the use of background music or noise is already very proven in the world of marketing as an effective way to influence customer behavior. Many studies have been conducted on how background music can cause us to respond when shopping and the conclusions are pretty definitive. What's playing in the background matters. Music choice can cause us to buy more products. It can even change what types of products we buy as was proven in a famous study in which psychologists could say sell more French products in a grocery store by simply playing French music over the store's loudspeakers. So then if that's the case, what's the deal with hold music, perhaps the lamest genre of music, when it's really needed the most? Well, behind the scenes, the creation and the selection of the music you hear while you're on hold is actually pretty complicated. An overarching issue here, too, is that no matter what you're hearing on the other end, you may just be eternally destined to be annoyed by it. Catherine O'Neill, a music psychology expert at the University of York, told Wired that whole music is sort of a conditioned response. Quote, we are annoyed by the waiting, but this feeling becomes associated with the music. End quote. So then why have the music at all? Well, O'Neill also adds this. Music is more effective than silence in decreasing the estimates of time past. Overall, the presence of updates or music has a positive influence on satisfaction when compared to just a ringing tone. So, then, Dave, if it's better to have it, why does it have to be so lame? Well, those that create the music have to walk a lot of fine lines here. Music has to fit the general vibe of the business. Like, for example, you don't want to upbeat music for a funeral home or hard rock for an insurance company. And obviously, if lyrics are involved, they have to be appropriate for callers. Then on top of all of that, if the music is too enjoyable, it can actually make you feel like you've been on hold longer. So, with all of that considered, that sort of dictates the very bland style that typically finally makes it to your ears. But even within that blandness, uh, that's obsessed over to some degree. Danny Turner, the head of creative programming at Mood Media, a producer of Hold Music, told Wired that avoiding selections with high-level frequencies, overly repetitive structures, or vocal patterns, or massive audio-level fluctuations is quite important. He says overly compressed files can be pretty unpleasant sounding on the other end of the phone line, and Dave, since phone lines were designed for voices only, the quality here typically doesn't shine. Too much repetition then could also cause you to count the intervals and then the measure of how long you've been on hold. Companies obviously can't default to playing popular music, unlike the Nickelback that you heard the other day, because of copyright issues. (laughs) You know, many popular songs cost thousands of dollars to license. Think about that; they're paying them to use that loop of just that portion, right? But within the sea of all the boring, there is one company that takes a different approach, and that's Apple. Apple's Hold Music has garnered a cult following of sorts, with its customer care tracks, even allowing callers to skip songs in a set playlist to curate their own Hold experience. But they're an outlier. Most companies are trying to play you something upbeat, but not too upbeat. Repetitive, but not too repetitive interesting but not too interesting doomed to be bland but in the moment of being on hold maybe that's exactly what
0: we need well you know what makes it worse honestly is when companies add the uh, corporate voice So it'll be like a little hold music playing, and then a a voice will come in. Your call's important to us. And there's always a gap,
1: too, so you think you're at the end. You're like, oh, my gosh, I finally made it out. They're finally about to answer. Yeah,
0: it's like a little click noise. Yeah, you feel like someone's picked up the phone, and then you hear that guy come in. That smug (laughs) jerk. (laughs) Your call's important to us. Get out of here. Jay, a few weeks ago, I shared something on my Instagram story feed that I thought was fairly innocent. It was a tweet from someone talking about how there really is no debate at the end of the day that when it comes to Girl Scout cookies, Samoas are hands down the best. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Well, innocent post it was not. Jay, I was borderline harassed by an internet mob of thin mint and tag-along cronies, politely, in air quotes, informing me how wrong I was in my love of the Samoa. So Jay says, and I ask you. Which Girl Scout cookie is queen in your book?
1: Well, I was part of that mob. I think I immediately sent you a message and said something like, have you ever heard of tagalongs or something
0: like that? Okay, well, you're wrong, but we'll talk about that later. Jay, I just got my cookies, my Girl Scout cookie order, my yearly order delivered last week, and they are already gone. But every year from January to April, our coworkers hit us up on behalf of their daughters. Girl Scout salespeople block the entrances to our favorite grocery stores and our pants start to fit just a little bit tighter because it's officially Girl Scout cookie season. But where did this delicious yearly ritual come from? And how did these cookies so effectively capture the heart Of an entire nation. Well, Jay, at their core, Girl Scout cookies are a success of epic proportions. Each year, more than 200 million boxes of cookies are shipped all around America. And to put that number in perspective, Jay, Girl Scout cookie sales top Oreos, Chips Ahoy, and Milano. The annual cookie sale only happens once per year and lasts roughly six to eight weeks. As I previously mentioned, this selling window typically falls at the end of winter and the beginning of spring, even though some rebel troops sell their cookies in the summer and the early fall. Girl Scout cookies come in 12 distinctly different flavors, even though not all flavors are available in every market. The origin and first appearance of Girl Scout Cookies looks to be traced back to over a hundred years ago, back to 1917. Back then, actually existing in the form of home-baked cookies that a troop in Oklahoma sold to fund some group activities. And from there, the, the word just it spread, and the, the legend grew. By 1934, the Girl Scout Cookie had evolved from home-baked delicious treat to a more commercial approach with the Thin Mint first arriving on the scene in 1939. Approved Girl Scout cookie facilities soon followed. And while there were as many as 29 approved bakery facilities in the 1940s, that number has shrunk today to only two massive approved operation facilities. And interestingly enough, the cookies actually taste different depending on which of the two facilities ship cookies to your area. So, as you can imagine, with the 200 million plus boxes sold, Girl Scout cookies are a big financial deal. Girl Scout cookie sales top a billion dollars per year. And because of the dominance this yearly wave of cookie sales brings to the cookie market, it is accepted and anticipated by its competitors. The annual Girl Scout cookie sale is a force of nature at a national level. John Frank, a Mintel food analyst, told USA Today, Big companies like Kraft know it's coming, and they've learned to live with it. It's like a storm, and there's nothing they can do but wait for it to pass, because there is absolutely no upside to marketing against the Girl Scouts. So Jay, outside of the scarcity appeal of the cookies, and of course the delicious taste, what makes this phenomenon so powerful? Well, for starters, it really does empower girls to become successful women as they grow up. Data from the Girl Scout Research Institute claims that over half of all female-owned businesses in the United States are headed up by a Girl Scout alum. Selling cookies is usually a girl's first exposure to the world of business. Frances Hesselbane, then the national executive of the Girl Scouts, told the New York Times a few years ago, she learns how to meet the public, Talk about a product, sell the product, and is responsible for collecting money, giving change, and delivering that product. That's quite a business venture for a seven-year-old. The strongest tie, though, is simple. Girl Scout cookies bring comfort. In a world of uncertainty and turmoil, Girl Scout cookies are part dessert, part philanthropy, and really part nostalgia. You can feel good about giving your money to the organization, and then feel good again by eating a cookie that often reminds you of your own childhood. Harry Balzer, a food expert at a national research firm, put it this way to USA Today. The cookies only come around once a year, and for that reason, they are very much like what Halloween is to candy and Thanksgiving is to turkey." Now, Jay, you can technically buy Girl Scout cookies year-round from places like Amazon, but don't be that guy, okay?
1: No, of course not. You know, I'll have you know, though, that uh, it's been previously established on this podcast that I was in the Boy Scouts for several years of my life, and the Boy Scouts, you know, they struggled with, like, how do we compete with this idea of Girl Scout cookies, and they never could quite get it right. So whenever I was in Boy Scouts, our main fundraiser was trying to sell popcorn but it was in, like, the big tins, and there were two problems with the popcorn. One is that it was way too expensive, and two is that it just did not taste very good. (laughs) And so those two things (laughs) made it to where it was nearly impossible. So, like, I would go over to my neighbor's, And it'd be like an 11-year-old boy, like, hey, I'm trying to sell this popcorn. And even my neighbors would look at me like, okay, man, come on. And I'd be like, yeah, I know. And they'd be like, come on, I can't buy that. And it's like, yeah, I know you can't. Okay, I'll just go to the next house.
0: (laughs) I'm telling you, there's actually good cookies. I mean, obviously the Samoa is the best, but there's a bunch of good flavors. So you're just
1: inviting more hate mail, (laughs) this time from the commute listeners.
0: And that's it let's go eat a couple samoas shall we i can't I already ate them all thanks for listening to this week's episode don't forget to rate subscribe and review commute on apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform check us out we're on social we are on twitter facebook and instagram and you can always say what up at our website commute the podcast.com music for commute is provided by my main man jason sammons for jay sis and i'm dave Croft. we'll see you next week